At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Let me begin our sermon this morning with a question. It might sound a little shocking, but it's legitimate. Is Jesus better than nothing? Is Jesus better than nothing? Our culture actually doesn't think so. Pew Research Center pointed out that over the last 15 years, religious nuns have doubled, not nuns, N-U-N-S, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Those are people who do not claim any religious affiliation. And from 2007 until today, they moved from 15% of our population to 30% of our population. So the fastest growing belief system is to disassociate from any formal belief system. This means that every year, about one more percentage point of our population identifies as not wanting to have any formal religious label placed upon them. Meanwhile, Christianity is said to be losing that same percentage point, about 1% each year in the broader population. There are all kinds of rabbit holes we could go down to dissect and explain why this might be the case. But let's just think about the big picture for a moment. 1% means that each year about 3 million people have decided to answer the basic questions of the human experience. Why, why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? How should I live? They're answering those questions by saying, I'd rather come up with my own answers than buy into any of the other options that are available. Not that many, not, as, not near as many as we think, are jumping into the camp that says that the way forward is to take the possibility of God completely out of the equation, atheism. Uh, not as many as we think are all claiming that the right way is impossible for any of us to discover. That's agnosticism. Now, they're not all saying that Muhammad or Buddha are the way to go, but about three million more people every year are deciding, whether unwittingly or not, uh, that, that they're coming to this conclusion that I don't think Christianity specifically is the way. And by the way, I mean the way to truth, the way to forgiveness, the way to salvation, the way to purpose, the way to love, the way to peace, ultimately the way to God. Most people aren't disconnecting from some kind of traditional Christianity because of their thoughts about Jesus either. Maybe that's been your experience. It's certainly been mine. That most people are disconnecting from their maybe historic familial association with Christianity, not because of Jesus, but because of how they view the organization of Jesus called the church. And so we all know that as an organization, Christianity has been a popular target to prey on. And we can see all kinds of reasons why that might be the case as well. So while the church gets scrutinized and criticized and politicized, no one really seems to want to demonize Jesus himself. Not all, but so many people are actually open to Jesus as a leader, as a teacher, as a standard, as an example. They would say that we should follow his way, his way of love, servitude, sacrifice. But we need to understand there's an infinite gap, an infinite gap between admiring the way of Jesus and actually believing that Jesus is the only way. 
There's a huge distinction there between admiring his way and believing his way is the only way. Now, Pastor Kyle Eidelman reminded us in his book, Not a Fan, that this is the difference between somebody who's a fan of Jesus and someone who's a genuine follower of Jesus. He wrote, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. So let's put it this way. The difference between fans and followers is one word. It's faith. And biblical faith is the faith that God's demand uh, that God demands is a commitment to the way of Jesus life and a rejection of every other way of life. And this is why when you come down to it Christianity is an exclusive claim that only through the way of Jesus do we have access to God the Father. That's the exclusivity of our faith, but it's also an inclusive faith because this way is available to everyone. And so these are things we must understand about what it is that we are placing our faith within. Now, our culture, of course, believes in the way of money, in the way of sex, in the way of power, in the way of politics. I think one of the reasons why people are so worked up today and why there's so much issue going on is because they've discovered that all these other ways ultimately have let them down. And whether you're a skeptic or somebody who is deeply grounded into biblical Christian faith, the story of the Bible is meant to expose every other way of living as faulty and guide all of us towards belief in the way of Jesus, which leads to eternal life. And that's how Jesus opens up chapter 14 of John's gospel when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is our third week working through this final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. And let's remember the context. The night Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, their belief in political ascension their belief that Jesus was starting a revolution that would lead them to freedom from Roman imperialism, their belief that the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the day we call the triumphal entry, and that would raise them up or bring them into power, all of that belief came crumbling down, crashing down on this particular night, and certainly with the events that followed. Jesus had already said that one of them would betray him, he said that he was leaving them. They didn't anticipate that, that where he was going, they could not follow. And he said that Peter would deny him. So their hearts were understandably troubled. Now the word troubled, it means, if you just look at it in its original context, it means to take away your calmness of mind, to disturb your equanimity. I had to look up that word this week. To disturb your equanimity. Yes, that's a real word. And have you ever had, have you ever had your equanimity disturbed? <laughs> Happens by my children like every day, I think. But it sounds painful. It sounds pretty horrible. But we all know what it means to have our calmness of mind attacked. We all know what it means to have anxiety grip our souls. That's what it means to have a troubled heart. And so that's our key question this morning. What are we supposed to do when the way we're headed doesn't seem certain and leaves us with anxieties? What do we do? Where do we go? What do we believe? Jesus' answer, it sounds far too simplistic, but he says, believe in God, believe in me. Believe in Jesus. And belief in Jesus, it sounds so generic. So thankfully, Jesus makes 
it more specific for us. He talks about what we ought to believe about him that will help us when we have troubled hearts. He first says, believe I will bring you to the Father. Let me again read verse one through verse six. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sometimes the way of Jesus just does not seem possible. It does sometimes for me in my spiritual journey, it does not seem possible to follow the ways of Jesus. Maybe you're thinking like I have at times, the world is on fire. All this inflation has left my bank account on fire. Our politicians are gaslighting everything. I've always got some relationship or two or 20 that's on fire that I need to put out. And those are just a few of the realities going on right now. What about all the what ifs? Uh, I've got another hundred imagined fires raging right now in my head. Even as I preach, even as you sit, you have the same. Sometimes the anxieties of my imagination, they're far worse than the, the anxieties of my reality. What, what do you mean, don't be troubled? Jesus tells my heart, he commands my heart not to be troubled? Impossible. How can we keep our hearts from being troubled? Jesus' answer, believe in God, believe also in me. The tenses are really important here. What he's literally saying is keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in me. The world is on fire. Keep on believing in me. All this inflation has left my bank account on fire. Keep on believing in me. Our politicians are gaslighting everything. Keep on believing in me. I've always got some relationship fire to put out. Keep on believing in me. I've got a diagnosis. Keep on believing in me. What, what about all the what ifs? What if my spouse? What if my kids? What if they? What if I? What if this? What if that? Keep on believing in me is what he says. And why can we keep on believing when we're troubled? No, he says... His words, because God's children are hope. The settling reality for us is that God's children will dwell, will dwell in God's dwelling place. If you have heard this verse before, maybe you've heard the King James Version. It's probably the most famous version of this particular verse because it says, in my father's house are many mansions. And as a kid, I used to have all these associations and aspirations come into my head about what that means and what that will look like. And so, so many people think that this means that we'll all be hanging out in our HGTV dream home on a beach overlooking some mountain suspended up in the sky that we'll finally have an in-ground pool with a hot tub that cascades into it or that chef's kitchen and an outdoor stone fireplace with a pizza oven or that master suite with a, a bunch of walk-in closets and a deck that comes off of it and, you know, a standalone tub. You, you add whatever amenities that you would like. Add them all to your list. The KJV translation, I hate to burst your bubble a little bit, but the KJV translation, King James Version, is based upon a word that actually means resting places. That's what the word means in Latin. The word means something different to us today. Shock, shock, since the word mansions that they use based on the Latin was from 1611. 
So when we think about it today, the point is we put all these associations with this word and that misses the whole point because the focus is on us. The hope that helps us through a troubled heart is not some custom-made dream house. That's not going to work. That's not going to make you, uh, make you uh, understand how to calm the anxieties of your mind, how to overcome a troubled heart. That's not what's going to get you there. It's that the disciples of Jesus, notice the language, they will be brought into the Father's house. What's the emphasis? It's not about the place for me. It's all about the person I'll be with. That's the difference. That's what Jesus understood. That's what he was teaching. And here's how he goes to prepare a place for us. How does he do it? He goes to a cross. He enters a grave. He empties that grave. He ascends to the Father, and just as sure as he lived, died, rose, and ascended, he will come again for his own, so that we might be with him also. So Jesus says he's going to the Father, but through the way of the cross. And Thomas speaks up, speaking for all the disciples, and basically says, we have no idea where you're going. Why doesn't he get that Jesus is talking on both a spiritual level and also a physical level? Because he does what we so often do. We're viewing all of life and reality through the world's lens and not through a heavenly lens. Jesus was able to do both. And through the Spirit, we're able to do the same. So to help him... And to help his disciples, Jesus makes one of his most famous statements in all of scripture. In the gospel of John, there are seven statements. They're called the I am statements of the gospel, where Jesus uses this very specific title that has referred to God in the Old Testament, the I am. Calling God, referring to himself as I am, means the one who is. No beginning, no end, just the great I am. All the way back to the bush with Moses. And so Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. He's describing who he is and why he came. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, they made a way to God. This is the gospel. That through Jesus' perfection, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, those who believe and place their faith in him alone, who say, I will follow your way, they are then forgiven of their sin and reconciled with God Almighty. And so he is the way, he is the truth. He is the standard for what is real in this world and what is true about God. There is no greater truth than what we find in Jesus Christ. He says, I am the life. He created life. He supplies life. He is the author of life. He is the resurrection and the life. There is no life apart from him. And yet while he's sharing all of these things with his disciples, did you know that his heart was actually troubled too? The same exact word is used to describe how Jesus was feeling just in the previous chapter, chapter 13, verse 21. So he knows what we're going through. He knows what it's like. John tells us that Jesus' heart was troubled when he knew that Judas had turned against him. So think of his circumstances because the Bible happened in real time and space. Here is Jesus, the son of God, but fully human, fully God, fully understanding what it's like to walk in our shoes. Judas betrayed him. Peter was going to deny him. The rest of the disciples were about to abandon him. The Romans were about to arrest him. The Jews wanted to kill him. His father allowed it all to happen. Jesus knew it needed to happen. Do you think he had a few reasons to be anxious? A few reasons, perhaps, to be troubled in his spirit. 
to not have a calm mind. How did he overcome? He believed in the Father. He trusted the Father. He thought about his future with the Father. That's how he got through. If your hope is rooted in the world, you will quickly be overwhelmed. But if your hope is in the Father, you'll end up resolved because you will know regardless of the outcome, you can say, I've got this because he's got me. Whatever the this is, and we all have them, whatever number of things you can list there, I've got this, I've got it because he's got me. Because at the end of this, the son is taking me to him. He's got me. So I've got this. I've got trust in my sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-loving, always working, always comforting, always remembering, always saving Father. You can believe in the Father when your world is on fire because you know and believe in his Son. It's not just about a place. It's really all about a person. And not just any person, it's the great I am. What are we supposed to do when the way we're headed doesn't seem certain and we're filled with anxiety? Believe Jesus will bring us to the Father. Next, believe Jesus will show us the Father. Look at verse seven. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Philip, another one of the 12, speaks up and asks Jesus for what's called a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. He basically says, just show us God. And then maybe this will be a little easier for us to understand. And the crazy irony of the whole thing is that while Philip is asking to see God, God in flesh is literally standing right in front of him and talking to him. Like right there. It's happening right there. How could he miss it? How could he not see it? Philip had a front row seat to see God at work, and yet he's wondering what God's wanting to do. He had a front row seat to hearing what God said, the word of God incarnate in Jesus was saying, and yet he's wondering, I don't really know what God's saying. Philip missed it. The truth is, so do I, and so do you. People have so much confusion about what God is like. Man, is he angry with me? What kind of, what is he thinking about me? What does he want to do with me? What, 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 is he, what are his thoughts towards me? I wish I could hear from him. I wish I could understand him. I'm just confused about him. But the Bible, the Christian story is so very clear here. We know what the father is like because we know what the son is like. If you know what the son is like, you know what the father is like. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like this conversation. Let me set it up. It'll take me a minute. But it's like this conversation happening in my family right now. Our, our, our family's been having a debate about my son's hair for quite some time. It's a very serious matter. 
<laughs> Not at all. My brother and my sister-in-law, are uh, they live in Portland, and they're always joking around and sending texts and making fun of his hair. Uh, they just have a hard time understanding it. He kind of has hair like mine. Mine's really short right now, so you can't tell. But if I were to grow it out long, it's really thick, and it, it, there's, there's no way to tame it. It's just a big fro. It's just what happens. And so my son kind of likes longer hair, and so he's grown his hair a little longer, and my brother and my sister-in-law, they like to kind of poke fun of it, and so they're always sending texts, and they think it's weird, and I think that's weird because they live in Portland, and Portland's whole city slogan is keep Portland weird. So I don't really understand what their problem is, but long story short, he likes his longer hair. So yesterday, uh, because my wife Katie, she kind of does this banter with my sister-in-law Lauren, she sends a picture of these boys, my son runs cross country, and so it's these boys at the cross country meet, and they all have long crazy hair. And she sends a text, and here's the picture, and she says, Josiah's hair game could always be worse. Boy in red shorts, LOL. I don't know who the boy in red shorts is. If it was showing his face, I wouldn't have put the picture up there. But lots of hair at this morning's cross-country meet. Lauren, my sister-in-law, says, I just need to know if he has full say over his hair or if you guys get some control. And then Katie says, the last cut he got, we all agreed on. And then what my wife does yesterday, she did this on my birthday. Today's my daughter's 10-year birthday. Yesterday was my birthday. So she does this just to poke fun at me on my birthday. But she, she pulls up a picture of me intentionally looking ridiculous when I was a college sophomore just to see if the school would put the picture in the yearbook. Because my son looks ridiculous on purpose in many pictures, and so she puts the picture side by side, sends it to my sister-in-law, here it is. <laughs> and I show you the picture in part because I've been blackmailed for the last 20 years at this church because of this picture. So I figure I might as well just get it out there for everybody so I don't have to deal with it anymore. And so she sends this picture, and then my wife writes to Lauren, it's in his DNA. <laughs> like father, like son. Friends, you get the point. Like father, like son. The book of Hebrews puts it this way about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to know what the Father's heart is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father's will is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father would say, listen to the Son. If you want to know what the Father will do, look at what the Son has done. Sometimes we miss seeing the Father through the life of Jesus. You can know the Father has spoken to you because the, the Son has spoken to us. You can know the Father has pursued you, is pursuing you now because the Son came for you. You can know the Father will save you because the Son died for you. You can know the Father heard you even when you don't think he's heard you because Jesus heard the words and thoughts of everyone around him. You can know the Father is gracious because Jesus is gracious. You can know the Father is patient because Jesus is patient. You can know the Father is long-suffering because Jesus is long-suffering. You can know the Father won't fail you because Jesus hasn't failed you. You can know the Father's with you because Jesus sent his spirit to be with you. If you want to know about God, all you got to do is know the Son. That's who he is. We know the Father through the Son. And so many in our culture are like, I don't get God. He's some angry, benevolent, distant Look at the sun. But what would God do? Look at the sun. But what would he say to me? Listen to the sun. 
God's not as confusing when you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the testimony of Jesus Christ to look at. That's who God is. Like father, like son. So when you're not certain where to go or what to think or what to do, believe in Jesus who has shown you the father. And finally, believe in Jesus that he will glorify the father through us. Look at verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So he's telling his disciples, you've witnessed what God has done, now you're going to participate in what God is doing. And these three verses are some of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted scriptures in the entire Bible. So I just want to deal with two of the major confusing points with these verses as we work through this point and close out our message this morning. So maybe one of those is you're thinking, how will I do greater works than the works of Jesus? Answer, you won't. Jesus is not talking about his miraculous works that demonstrated his divinity. We will not walk on water more than Jesus. We will not raise more people back to life than Jesus. We will not calm more storms or multiply more food or create more wine or heal more sick than our Savior. Now, this doesn't mean that God never works through his children to do miraculous things. I believe he has, and I believe he does. But from the very beginnings of the church, the greater works of this verse have been understood to mean the success of Jesus' disciples making disciples. People who actually acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Think about it. Do we find more miraculous signs in the book of Acts which is written over decades, the follow-up to the Gospels, than we do in the Gospels written over a three-year period of time in the life of Jesus. Not at all. But the truth is, it's really not even meant to be a comparison. Because the work of the Son is reflective of the Father. And the work of Jesus' disciples is reflective of the Son. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to empower the disciples to continue the work of the Son to the glory of the Father. This is the triune mission of God. This is his redemptive work. So it's all because of Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, in the name of Jesus. So what greater works has the Son done through his disciples as they followed his Spirit? Well, think about that. When he left the earth, 120 people were left claiming him to be the Messiah the savior of the world. On the first day of the church, what's called the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to those who believe to indwell the believer until they are reunited with God the Father, that 120 became more than 3,000 in one day. Three years of Jesus' life, 120. One day of the church, 3,000. That is the greater work. That's the thing that Jesus is talking about. Disciples making disciples is the greater thing. Our primary purpose then in life to do the work of Jesus, this continued work of Jesus, is to make disciples of Jesus. Which is exactly what he says in Matthew 28. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. The thing is, friends, you can be successful at whatever it is that you want to be successful at in the world, but if you're a follower of Jesus who claim faith in Jesus, then the one thing, the one job, the one aim, the one hope is that we would make disciples of Jesus. That's the scorecard. That's what matters. That's why we're here. That's why we're empowered. 
And so Jesus says, you'll do greater things. You'll see people come to faith. Now, maybe you're thinking of the second question. Well, does whatever then you ask in my name, this I will do, does that mean that I get whatever I pray for in Jesus' name? That if I just smack Jesus at the end of a prayer, then I'll get it? Is that how this works? Is this some kind of on-demand prayer? No, it is not. And Jesus' name is powerful, but understand what Jesus is saying. We aren't the decision maker. That's why we ask in his name. We're placing ourselves under the authority of the Father. The authority of the Father has been given to the Son, and then we place ourselves under the authority of the Son, saying, I'm going to ask in your name because I want to submit to your authority. Whatever happens, ultimately, it's because of you. And when I pray in your name, I'm not praying my desires. When I use your name, that means that I'm matching my character with yours. So when we ask in Jesus' name, that means we're asking with the heart of Christ. There's no more room for prayers that are self-serving. All the prayers then become about how we can serve the cause of Christ, his glory, his name, to the glory and the fame of the Father. It changes the posture of our prayer. It doesn't change what we pray about. It doesn't mean we can't bring certain things to him. It just changes the tone. It says, when I ask these things, I'm just trying to align my heart, Jesus, because it's so hard in this world. I just want to align my heart with yours. So I want to pray in your name so that your desires are mine, so that your will is mine, so that what you want to do is what I want to do. So I'm going to pray in your name. And I pray for my spouse and for my kids and my grandchildren and children for our church and community and pastors and leaders and neighbors and coworkers, every cultural issue and conflict and every election that transpires and comes by. We pray according to Ephesians 6 at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. But the point is prayer is about agreeing with Jesus, not using him as some genie in a lamp. Prayer is about asking and then letting go. It's about lifting up by laying down. It's about seeking and surrendering. And as we pray to the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son, he will respond to us in whatever way will bring him the most glory. What are we supposed to do when we're headed down a pathway, a way that doesn't seem certain and we're filled with anxieties? Keep on believing in Jesus. Keep on believing in Jesus. That's what your heart needs to hear this morning. Keep on believing in Jesus. Kyle Eidelman reminded me of a story of Nicodemus in the book, Not a Fan. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a religious leader who was interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus. So he set up a meeting to meet with Jesus at night under the cover of dark so that nobody would know he was actually gonna be around him so that nobody would see that he wanted to talk to him. And Jesus told him that if you're really going to be my follower, the way this works is it will cost you everything. And he says it over and over in the Gospels. It'll cost you everything. You literally have to lay down your life and surrender your will for his. And in fact, that's a true thought throughout Scripture. Following Jesus isn't something you can do at night where no one notices. It's a 24-hour-a-day commitment that will interfere with your life. That's not the small print. That's the whole deal. It will cost you everything. That's a guarantee. But here's the end of the story, friends. 
if you choose to be a follower of Jesus and you follow him as the way, the only way, truth, and life, when all is written, he will bring you into the Father's house. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? That's enough for me. I'm looking forward to that. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this day. And thank you for your word. Father, we so often have troubled hearts. And Father, I pray for everyone who is here this morning who is overwhelmed by the circumstances of their lives, that if they are a follower of Jesus, they would keep on believing in him, that you would empower them through your spirit, that you would speak to them through your son, through your word, through other brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would lift them up, Father, and spur them on towards love and good deeds, that they would overcome in the name of Jesus. Not using his name as some magic potion, Father, but understanding as we submit and surrender under his authority and power and align our hearts with his will, you move and you always have. We know we're loved because of Jesus. We know we're cared for because of him. And Father, for any here who have not submitted their lives, have not surrendered to that belief in Jesus, are still believing maybe in nothing at all, maybe in nothing in particular, that even now they'd have the courage, they'd follow your spirit's guidance. And if they're online, they'd just say, I need to talk about Jesus. Or if they're in the room, they'll come up front as we sing or after the service say, I need to talk about Jesus. I want to know him. So Father, be with us through your spirit today. Help us to keep on believing in your son when all the things around us seem like they might be on fire. We trust you. We believe in you. We call out your name. It's in that matchless and powerful name that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.